Hello and welcome to Explorify Canada podcast. Join us as we sit with other Canadians at the roundtable. To discuss and sometimes argue about financial independence in Canada. Hi guys, welcome to the Explore FI Canada podcast. This afternoon, we have uh, Money Mechanic as usual. We have Chrissy and Ryan at the roundtable, and we're very excited to welcome Megan to the roundtable this week. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. It's great to be here. You hail from Victoria, BC, same as me. Yay. Yay. Um, but we want to hear some of the interesting things that are about your life about living in Victoria so that we can share it with our listeners and you know, sort of gather some more information, you know, where it's all about building up how it, how FI is for each of us in the different parts of Canada. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, if you could. Okay. I am born and raised in Victoria, spent a small amount of time in Northern Ontario and decided that winters were not for me. So came flying back to the West Coast and have not left again. Don't ever plan to. Uh, I have four kids who are 12, 8, 5, and 2. So it's a hectic but happy life. That blows my mind. I, I'm so impressed. <laughs> As someone with only two kids, I'm impressed. It's amazing. Well, my daughter was able to eat an apple this morning, so I was just like floored by that. <laughs> She's one. That's success right there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I have four kids. I'm I'm doing it, but no one can say I'm doing it well. <laughs> well, so how are you managing to come on this podcast with four kids? Because when my kids were little at those ages, it was really hard to get away. <laughs> uh, well, my oldest is in a class right now, and my three younger ones, I have set them up with a movie and popcorn. So oh. with any luck, we'll make it all the way through. <laughs> No problem. If you need to take a break, we'll be here. Okay. <laughs> well, hang on. <laughs> so uh, you've told us, we, we've read a little bit in your bio that you sent us that um, something that you are interested in, which not a lot of people are into, is something called the Smith Maneuver. Can you tell us about that? That I found it fascinating that y your first finance book that you read was about the Smith Maneuver. I mean, who who does that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that's right. And in high school, no less. Uh, I stumbled upon it in in my last year of high school. And it was just laying on the coffee table. And it was uh, kind of a fluke luck. I was bored. It was back in the day when you couldn't kind of choose a TV show, you had to wait for something you wanted to come on. I mean, this is just, <laughs> this is archaic, right? And uh, the, the book happened to be laying on the table. One of my parents must have got it. I actually don't even know how it ended up there, but I just thought, well, I'll flip through quickly. And it really sucked me in. It's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's an easy financial strategy, but it's easy to understand once you've read the book. It walks you through really clearly and it shows in really simple math how people who use that strategy end up so much further ahead, you know, at the end, end of their working careers than someone who doesn't use the strategy. And so it's, it's kind of a, when you're setting it up originally, it's a little bit more work to structure your mortgage. You got to make sure you've got a home equity line of credit. And then each month you're, 
you know, you're using it to purchase some type of investment or you can save it up and, you know, do something like a rental property or, or anything along those lines. Um, so it is a little bit more work just to manage, but it's no extra money out of your pocket. Uh, so for me reading that as a teenager, my first thought was, oh, get rich. No work. I like this. And, <laughs> you know, this was before I had to pay bills or anything. So it seemed really simple. And I thought, well, this is a great idea. So I, I started putting money away and, you know, really focusing on the idea of real estate and how I can use real estate to make my life a lot simpler uh, long term without having to just slave away, putting away a few dollars here and there, trying to, you know, build my RRSPs and all of that. So that was kind of my my goal as a teenager. Of course, you can't you can't really buy a house in Victoria as a teenager. It's high <laughs> yeah. cost of living area. So it took me a little while, a few years of working several jobs, putting together money, and um, then Back in and that time, my parents gave me uh, four thousand dollars. They said, "Well, you can either use this as a wedding, a wedding later on, or you can use it as part of a down payment." And my grandmother gave me a ten thousand dollar loan, which was amazing. You know that kind of family help. Uh, so I used that towards towards the down payment on my first house. And at that time, I didn't have twenty percent down. I had to use the CMHC loan. So I built equity years and years, making extra payments and and building building everything that I could equity-wise. And from there, once I had my 20%, I restructured my mortgage so that I could set up a home equity line of credit. And I was off to the races. Uh, it took me a few years, really, of really, you know, direct focus towards this is what I want to do and making sure that I was paying things down and getting to that 20% equity level um, before I could set it up. And now that it's done, it's really, really minimal maintenance. But each month, it's working towards my future, which is kind of amazing because it's it's no money out of my pocket, right? I mean, we're still putting money away. We're saving in the RSPs and we have pensions and things like that. So we are really about diversification, but of all of my of all of my financial plottings, that is the one that is kind of the simplest. Mm -hmm. So Megan, it sounds like uh, you had a HELOC and then it says uh, you're off to, you said you're off to the races after that. So does that mean you took that HELOC to invest in other rental properties? Is that what you did? Yeah, that's exactly what I did. Uh, so the first purchase with the pulling out the equity from the from the HELOC was to buy a second home and install a basement suite in it. So we rent that out as well. Um, and then after that, now we're moving more towards uh, stock market and things like that, ETFs. Uh, Mostly because now we have quite a bit of our wealth in real estate, specifically in Victoria, which feels like too much nest egg in one area. So we're going to work really hard on on diversifying into other other areas as well. So that's kind of a whole other whole other question regarding life cycle investing. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that concept, but 
it's yeah I've got a lot of balls in the air <laughs> no I I've read that book too the life cycle investing book and it's fantastic and Isn't I agree it? that it's it's a perfect read for anyone who's interested in leveraging um, especially from a young age it just makes so much sense once you read it it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's my second favorite book. Smith Maneuver is first. It's got a, a special <laughs> place in my heart because it really made it seem like finance is easy for the yeah. average person who grew up without really any exposure to, you know, financial independence or retirement or anything like that. Right. And mm -hmm. so it just happened to be there at the perfect time when I had an open mind and so it's it's pretty great. I that will always be my favorite book, but but life cycle investing is coming in a pretty pretty close second. Awesome. And I I realize that we probably should have started with this, but could you just break down the Smith maneuver in a nutshell, just for anyone who might not know what it's about? Yeah, absolutely. So the basic steps of the Smith maneuver are when you have a home or a, a property uh, that has a mortgage, you can set up what's called a home equity line of credit on that mortgage. So basically what that means is when you make a mortgage payment, your mortgage payment is split between a payment towards the principal of the loan and a payment towards the interest of the loan. And you make that payment and your home equity line of credit, whatever you've paid down on the principal part, becomes available on the home equity line of credit or HELOC generally referred to. So if you pay, you know, $200 towards your principal of the mortgage, $200 becomes available to borrow from your HELOC. And you take that $200 and you can either purchase, you know, stocks or bonds or, or really any investment. Lots of people will use their HELOCs. They'll save it up until they've had a whole lot of equity uh, you know, become available in the HELOC and they'll purchase a business or they'll purchase a rental property. Um, you can you can buy big things, you can buy small things, really anything, um, as long as it generates income. So what happens then is throughout the year, there's interest paid on the HELOC, obviously, like it's just like any other line of credit where there's interest due each month. And what you can do is have your HELOC pay the interest for itself. So when you do that, let, let's go with the original example of $200 becomes available. It's going to depend on what your interest rate is and all of that. But just to keep the math, math easy, let's say you're paying, I don't know, $30 of interest each month on that $200 that you can take out, right? So instead of taking out the full $200 and maxing out your HELOC, you leave a buffer uh, and so that you can pay your interest with it. So if you're paying $30 interest, you would only borrow $170 and you'd leave $30 in there for when that interest comes out. Basically, each month throughout the year, the HELOC is paying for itself, so you're not having to pay any extra money out of pocket, um, and it's paying for itself, but you are still paying interest on it because you're going to owe that money in the end. And then when tax time comes and you file your taxes, you are able to write off as a deduction all of the interest that you've paid that year. So that's lowering your taxable income, so you generally will get larger 
tax refunds. And all of your government tax benefits, like your child tax benefit, go up. You know, for people who are already retired or, you know, of an older age, things like uh, old age security and guaranteed income supplement, any any real government benefits that you get that are based on your, your, your net income, those will all go up because your taxable income went down because you had that write-off. So it puts a bigger tax refund once a year, and then all of your taxable benefits throughout the year, they go up. So it actually ends up putting more money in your pocket each month. Um, And over time, as those, as you're paying more and more equity towards your house and you're borrowing more and more from the HELOC, uh, your interest payments are getting larger and larger and your mortgage is getting paid down. So let's say you had a $500,000 house and you went all the way through this process and you've paid off your $500,000 house and now you have a $500,000 home equity line of credit, you can continue that forever and ever or you can sell everything that you've got and pay off your HELOC and you're, you're a lot further ahead in the end. And so if it depends on the the investment that you're purchasing, um, let's say the simplest way, what kind of the majority of people do in my experience is they're putting that money into the stock market. So generally, they're doing, you know, mutual funds or exchange traded funds or something diversified and still risky in the sense that it's the stock market, but because it's so diversified, it's a little a little bit more balanced. Um, and let's say they're making the average 8% stock market return, uh, but they're paying, you know, 3% on their home equity line of credit. They're banking the difference. So they would be banking 5% each, each year throughout this, let's say, 20-year process. And that that 5% after 20 years is a whole lot of money. It really depends on on you know the returns they're getting and how much interest they're paying and there's a lot of there's a lot of factors there. Uh, but there's actually a calculator on the Smith Maneuver website that you can put in your own variables that say well my mortgage is this much and my interest is this much and my HELOC would be this much and I'm anticipating get that getting this percent return and it'll actually walk you through this is how much you'd be predicted to get based on those numbers. It doesn't calculate yet your government benefits like the child tax benefit uh, because that's really hard for the calculator to work in because that's a whole other ball game, right? There's so many different income-based government benefits, but well, I feel like I've been going on for a while now. It's a whole book for a reason, <laughs> but, you know, but, but that explains kind of the, the basic concept of it. Uh, so it seems complicated because there's when you're when I'm describing it, there's several steps, right? But it's it doesn't feel complicated throughout the year. I only log into my Smith Maneuver account once a month when I'm dealing with the interest payment and then when I file my taxes and that's it. So it's over the course of the entire year, it co- it's maybe three hours like in a year. It's not, it's not something that f- feels like ongoing crazy maintenance and trying to track things and all of that. The setup takes a little while longer because you've there's extra steps to get your mortgage set up that way. But then the maintenance of it 
is just so, so minimal, especially considering the, the return that you get for, for really not doing very much work at all. I'd like to touch on a few of the technicalities there just um, just to help iron it out. If I remember correctly, when you take the money out of the HELOC, you can't put into an investment vehicle that is tax sheltered, right? It has to go into something that's taxable. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the, the RRSPs and the TFSAs, those are already not taxed. So the only way that you can get a tax write-off is if you're... If, is if you're paying interest on a taxable income. And another caveat to that is you can't invest in things that don't generate income. You have to have a reasonable belief that your investment will generate income. So you couldn't buy something like uh, like gold, where gold itself does not generate income. You're purely speculating that in the future the gold will be more worth more than it is now that's not how it works it has to be something that will make you money so you can buy a you know a business or real estate or you can you know buy stocks in companies that could potentially pay you dividends um, but if it's a, if you're buying a stock in a company that specifically says in their mandate that they'll never pay dividends you can't buy that company because it's not going to generate you income this is not something that you can buy and, and anticipate capital gains. If you happen to get capital gains and, you know, the company that's paying you dividends goes up way in value and you sell it off, well, that's all great and fine and they don't have a problem with that. But you have to, be, you have to be able to prove, if you were to ever get audited, that you had a reasonable belief that that investment would bring you income. Yeah, I, I think the the point of your investment producing income as well and cash flow is that that's that is the entire point of the Smith maneuver. You want the cash flow coming back in so you can pay down the mortgage, which opens up the HELOC for more equity, and then you can begin to reinvest that outwards, and then it goes back in and creates this beautiful little cycle. Um, so my question here is, um, are you crazy? Because a lot of people. <laughs> I'm saying I'm not saying we're, we're all three of us here are definitely into leverage investing, but I'm I'm not doing it because you know I'm I'm in a marriage, aka a team, and uh, not every party was on board with leverage investing. But most Canadians are not on board with leverage investing. In fact, I would imagine that while you are setting up these accounts and talking it through and doing your research, I'm confident that you ran into like 98% opposition and people trying to talk you out of it. Is that true? Like. It, would it be something that people would be like scared to even mention to you? <laughs> yes, uh, that is true that I did run into a lot of people saying, are you crazy? However, I would put that back and say most Canadians are absolutely on board with leveraged investing because that's what purchasing a home is. You're taking out a large debt in the anticipation that at some point you're going to own it and that hopefully, fingers crossed, it's going to go up in value. So the idea that Canadians can't handle the idea of, of leverage 
I wouldn't I wouldn't classify that as as totally correct uh, because lots of us have huge mortgages, especially in high cost of living areas. So unless someone is is buying their homes in cash, they're already participating in that leveraged environment. Now, when you're doing the Smith maneuver, you're not taking on any extra leverage. You are taking on the exact same amount of leverage that you originally started with. So if you bought your five hundred thousand dollar home and you took out a mortgage on that, your debt is the exact same when you're using the Smith Maneuver as it is when you first took out that mortgage. So if you're willing to purchase the home for that amount, you're it's the same thing to use the Smith Maneuver. You're essentially just not reducing the leverage. You're not increasing it. You're not, you're not, you know, taking out several hundred thousand dollars more than what your mortgage is. You're just not paying your mortgage down. You're taking your equity from your house and purchasing something that will ideally make you money. Now, you're not always going to make money in in any investment, right? There's no guarantees ever. Past performance is no guarantee of future performance, right? But that's where that careful, calculated risk play comes in, making sure that you're extremely well diversified, making sure that you're aware of the investments that you're purchasing. You're not going out and buying a business with no you know, thorough investigation as to how much cash flow it's producing, that kind of thing. And also, most Canadians when they're refinancing their mortgage, I don't quote me on the exact percentage because I've just lost it from my brain, but a huge percentage of Canadians, when they refinance uh, their regular mortgages on their, you know, generally five-year terms, uh, a large percentage of them pull equity out to do things like pay down other debts or pay down their cars or go on a vacation or do a reno in their house. I want to say it's like 30%, but don't quote me on that. But I I think it's high. It's very high. So people are using the equity in their houses anyways. It's just that they're not using it with a strategy. They're kind of fumbling and hoping that eventually their house will be paid down and they'll be able to sell it and, you know, retire at some point, or they're hoping that eventually the equity in their house will rise as the markets rise with inflation and that kind of thing, and they'll be able to sell it and downsize somewhere smaller. So a lot of that is like uh, kind of a fumble and hope that it works situation. Whereas with the Smith Maneuver, anybody that's using that strategy should not ideally be going in using it blind. They should have a very clear, very uh, well-planned strategy that they'll follow in good markets and bad markets. And, you know, they're not going to sell everything they've got and take a big hit in the stock market kind of thing when it's a bear market. Or, you know, they need to know what they're doing. This is not a, a super beginner strategy. It needs to be something that they're willing to devote the time to really thoroughly learning about and planning for, but that doesn't necessarily make it more risky because worst case scenario in the future, if you decide Smith Maneuver is not for me, that kind of thing, you still just owe the same amount of money that you owe today. 
you're not owing more. You're not leveraging like it is with, for example, life cycle investing, where you are, that is a really true form of leverage. And that is a high risk, in my opinion, high reward strategy. The Smith maneuver is more kind of average Joe. Anybody can do this if they have a mortgage and 20% equity and the time to devote to really learning about it. And people that maybe aren't able to devote the time to really getting their head wrapped around it, I would say don't do it because it could go wrong, right? And you could find yourself 30 years from now and you still owe the same amount on your mortgage as you do now. And you've invested in all these terrible things that have all gone to zero. And, you know, you didn't invest in diversified ETFs. You you went with like one crazy stock or I don't know, there's, there's ways you can mess it up, right? Like it's definitely possible to mess it up. But the idea that it's it's really heavy on leverage and really heavy on risk. And, you know, only people with, you know, gonads of steel can, can I, can I say gonads? <laughs> I call it the, the iron stomach. There you go. Iron stomach. Yes. Uh, only people with the iron stomach can handle it. That's not true. Not once you really get to know the strategy. And, you know, once you're really, really aware of, all of the moving parts and you've been doing it for a little while, you know, like I sleep like a baby. I'm a, I'm a high risk type of person, a, a high risk, type, high risk, high reward type of person. My husband is not. And getting him to do this strategy was a little, a little bit more convincing. I really had to show him that I knew what I was talking about. And, you know, he wanted to see people's real evaluation of it, real people who weren't trying to sell us anything or anything. He just wanted to know what does the average Joe think of this strategy? So, you know, we spent some time online and reading, you know, kind of how did people experience this? And if we had started this 30 years ago, where would we be today? And we ran all the numbers and we did our own calculations. And it was a lot of thought, a lot of processing and planning. Once it was up and running, he sleeps like a baby now too. <laughs> you know, he sees, the, he sees how it's working. It puts more money into our pocket every month than what we had before because of those you know, significantly higher tax returns and significantly higher child tax benefits. So we end up, even if our investments did go down a little bit in value, we still would be ahead um, because of those increased government benefits. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Everything you said is is what I tell people when they ask me because we we also do a form of the Smith maneuver. Uh, we we had a paid off mortgage and so we were pulling equity out of our house. We weren't just moving it around. So, but it, it's all the same kind of process. And the number one thing is you have to learn how to do it before you start, or you're going to make the big mistake of selling when you panic. And, like you said, if you know what you're doing, it's not scary and it's not risky because you know you have a plan and you're following it and that's all it is. Well, it comes down to it is everything about any kind of leverage investing. It's all behavioral. Mm-hmm. And that's why you don't hear it talked about that much is because we simply, as a generalization, us as investors are not good at behavioral finance. Mm-hmm. Not many of us are. So that's the problem. The only problem with this, that Smith maneuver leverage investing is really yourself and your your behavior. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, that's true about everything though, right? If you're going to invest, if you're going to put money into your RRSPs or TFSAs or, or anything, right? If you're going to freak out when there's a bump in the market, because there will always be a bump in the market, then you're better off not putting your money in there at all. Even though everybody is aware that's how you build long-term wealth, right? Is taking small risks over time. So it's, it's, yeah, I wouldn't say like, don't jump in if you're not ready to jump in. You have to be a hundred percent on board, Mm -hmm. but it's not risky. Now, if you were to, if someone was to go ahead and implement this type of strategy, you either have to put in a lot of the work, as you mentioned, to learn all the nuance yourself, or there must be, you know, fee, um, fee for service type advisors that will work you through this to get you started. Is that a better way to go? Uh, Chrissy, <laughs> did you do it all yourself? No, I did not. <laughs> Megan, <laughs> Megan clearly knows it inside out and I understand it very well, but not to the level that Megan does. I, I, I couldn't just explain it the way she did, but I, I understand it well enough that I'm comfortable with it and feel completely safe. So what I did was I learned everything I possibly could online, as you did with your husband, Megan. I I read blogs and um, I think it was a red flag deals forum. There's one thread that was massive and I read through the whole thing, (laughs) but it was so helpful. I learned everything I needed to know to feel completely confident. And at that point, I through that forum, I found Ed Rempel and he is our advisor. And yeah, I'm a hardcore (laughs) DIYer, but with this, I felt more comfortable having an expert guide us through it. And so I decided to jump ship and, you know, abandon my DIY efforts and um, work with Ed. And I've been so happy. He's he's an accountant uh, by training and he's also uh, our advisor. So he's got a lot of skill sets to, to uh, offer to us to help us through this. So I feel 100% safe with him helping us uh, do our tax returns and uh, file everything properly because that, that for me was the scariest part. Yeah, yeah, that's completely true. I have seen Ed online a lot. Anytime Smith Maneuver is there, <laughs> he is there. He yeah. has a wealth of knowledge. What is it that he says? Like he gets the, he goes to funds with all-star managers or something. Yeah. He gives hockey references a lot, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> you know, He seems really, really knowledgeable. It was actually through him that I discovered life cycle investing as well on his Me blog. Too. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> great yeah. guy. Yeah, so if I was ever you know, in a terrible car accident and couldn't manage anymore, you know, I'm brain dead or something. I told my husband, go with Ed, like just transfer everything there. He knows what he's talking about. There are fees, but also it's better than not knowing what you're doing. You know, if you've got to choose between those two, if you don't feel confident in choosing your own investments or you just don't want to devote the time to it, you but you want to get the gains from it, go to a professional. Absolutely. Like, and that's probably the majority of Canadians, like the, the vast majority don't want to DIY it. They want someone who really has their head in the game. Mm-hmm. And he seems great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was comfortable with the investing part, but it was the whole leverage side that is was so foreign to me and um I'm so glad that we got him on board because now like you I sleep like a baby at night it's <laughs> it's been great all right should we circle back around a little bit into where Megan lives and have a look at some of the FI type costs that are particular to the our area sure Ryan's gone awfully quiet are you does your mic still working Ryan <laughs> 
No, no, my mic still works for sure. <laughs> I'm just building a list, right? I'm like, okay, there's no bridge to Victoria. There's no Uber in Victoria. Um, everything has to be shipped over, you know, so that's going to add a lot of cost to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what's good about Victoria? High real estate prices. Why do you live there? <laughs> uh, well, lots of reasons. I mean, I was born and raised here, so my entire social network is here. But even if it wasn't, I would want to live here. The climate is unbeatable. You know, it snows like two days a year. And yeah, it rains in the winter, but you don't have to shovel rain off of your driveway. <laughs> you know, it's low maintenance that way. And uh, the mountains and the ocean. And it's a very kind of outdoorsy type of town where people are going, you know, kayaking and hiking and, and camping. And it's it's very lifestyle based, which is just right up my alley. I'm a hippie at heart. I want to be in nature and, and I like it. It's big city enough that it has all the amenities, but it's small city enough that, you know, we're not sitting in smog either. It's, it's the perfect balance. So what have you found around here that is, uh, you know, sort of a good uh, way of saving money on, you know, our common stuff like transportation of food and things like that. Do you have anything here that you do particularly that you would share that you're like people need to know about this this is you know important oh tricky victoria is hard to cut costs in i mean there's all the basic stuff like if you've got a yard use it to grow your food and you know if you can get a, a credit card that's giving you points, you know, use that and work the system. Uh, we do all of our grocery shopping or most of it at the Real Canadian Superstore because we have a credit card with them that gives us 3% cash or 3% points, which ends up being used for groceries. You know, with four kids, our grocery budget is pretty ridiculous, but we spend that and then we get it back throughout the year and we'll use it for things like, you know, we'll We'll buy groceries with our points one month and we'll put that money out and we'll use it for a vacation or different things like that. It's just kind of strategy. There's a small financial community in Victoria, people who are kind of passionate about either mustachian living or real estate investing and and that kind of thing. And I try and connect with those like-minded people because Honestly, they have some great ideas. And when you have a huge community of people all with that kind of similar focus of making money and saving money, you get a lot of tips that you wouldn't necessarily have thought about. So I don't necessarily focus too much of my time on the saving the pennies because I just don't have that much time to go around. But I do focus on long-term bills and things that, you know, we can save large amounts of money on over an extended period of time. So like we use our cell phones are through public mobile, which is like a discount kind of online cell phone provider. Oh yeah. Public mobile is a (laughs) <laughs> That's right. They're amazing. Yeah, it's it's great. It's great service. And it's like a quarter of the price that we were paying when we had cell phones through Rogers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, it's it's little things like that, where it's kind of a one time investment into researching something and I get it and then it's set up and I don't ever have to think about it again. And that's kind of a huge priority for me is I don't want to spend 
tons of time all the time trying to figure out how to save, you know, a dollar on buying apples that week, right? I don't want to be coupon clipping. I know that it does save a lot of money, but it's just not worth it. <laughs> My time is more valuable than that. I'll do it if it's if it's an ongoing extensive cost, but I'm not interested in, you know, driving halfway across town because the gas there is four cents cheaper. It's just not worth it for me. No, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm big on like, what's that time cost? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense too. We've talked about that a lot. I mean, you focus on earning more is more a better use of your time too. That's absolutely it. The ability to earn more is infinite. You can only cut so much from your expenses though. So I tend to think upwards, not downwards. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So what I want to know is, okay, so you don't coupon cut and neither do I because, you know, Flip is an app, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, you, what, what is your fixed expenses then? Because, um, I mean, out here in Kitchener, I can get my fixed expenses below 20 grand easily. So out in Victoria, what, what's the lowest that you've gotten yours to? Oh, annually. Hmm. I would say probably high 50,000. Um, we have a couple of properties in Victoria, which are not cheap. Um, and then four kids to feed and two vehicles. So we're not living, uh, a mustachian lifestyle in any way other than I'm all about life optimization. You know, if I'm going to have a cell phone anyways, how can I get that cost down? But if I had to estimate, I, yeah, I would say probably the lowest I've ever gone. Well, not ever. I mean, obviously when I was early twenties, I was working for minimum wage, right? But now as, as my life is set up as in my thirties, I think it's, it's around like 55, 60,000 would be my estimate. Damn. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Do you take well, those cars through the drive-through? <laughs> I, I will know whether or not Mr. Money Mustache approves of your lifestyle, depending <laughs> on that question. Okay. Uh, no, not really. But you have to remember that fifty-five, sixty thousand is including three rental units, right? I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not including the income from that. Like they pay for themselves plus a little bit. We earn just under a hundred thousand a year. So we are still putting away a decent amount of money. I mean, if we're really going like budget lockdown, we're getting it maybe a little bit lower than that, but, but just kind of living throughout our, our regular lives is, is yeah. Yeah. I would say hmm, probably 60 or 70 would be kind of my, where we are when we're not, pinching all the pennies. Could, could you ballpark um, your fixed expenses without uh, any of the rental houses expenses? Like if you just had, oh, if you just thought of like your own work. car, house, cell phone, food, gas, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, uh, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but I'm, I'm just really curious, like would that number go down towards like, you know, 40 or 30 grand? Because I think that's something that, yeah. that's a number that I think a lot of Canadians would resonate with because you know 30 uh, i mean 40 grand a year in annual expenses means a million dollar fire number so i think that canadians want that if they can if they can hear forty thousand dollars a year in victoria and then they hear all those great things you just mentioned uh, a few moments beforehand uh you know along with the mustache and lifestyle that can be lived there you're gonna get a lot of new neighbors <laughs> yeah, I I would even though you've just said it, I would say around 40,000, maybe even like mid 30s um without including the rental units. 
Yeah, that would be a ballpark because we don't, we're not living extravagantly, but we are careful with how we spend our money and we really prefer to spend on assets that are going to grow without losing too much value in our life, right? So we, we try and make sure that the kids are really interested in things that don't necessarily cost a lot of money. And, you know, we're not putting them in really expensive sports or that kind of thing. We're very strategic with what kind of long-term things we're setting up for ourselves. And we're not wanting to buy things that are going to be losing us money each month other than the vehicles. But I'm just too lazy to take the bus, honestly. (laughs) Um, So if I up my expenses by like 10 grand, I'll only have to shovel twice a year. That is tempting. It is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not jealous at all. Is it? That seeping through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say if you up your expenses a little bit, but also you don't have four kids, right? So you could optimize way more than we're optimized. I mean, we the house that we live in now. It's well, it's technically six bedrooms, but we only have four for ourselves, um, and then two in a basement suite that we rent out. So it's a big house, but if we didn't have four kids, we could be living in the two two bedroom suite and renting out the upstairs, and our expenses would, I mean, just plummet completely. So like we're we're not, you know, sacrificing too much. If we really wanted to, we could pack all the kids into the same room, but. I mean, who wants that kind of nightmare, right? <laughs> you know, it sounds exhausting just thinking about it. So we're not doing that. But if you don't go as as bonkers with the procreation as we did, then, then you're good. It would be amazing. There's a lot of opportunity here. And the great thing about Victoria is that the real estate, though it's expensive, it, it definitely is no, no question about that. It's limited that we live on an island, so it can only expand so much. And the way that the island is laid out, um, there's a there's a large mountain called the Malahat. And to leave Victoria, you have to go over this large Malahat to go up the island to all of the smaller, smaller cities and towns. And uh, that Malahat is a bit of a monster. So people don't really want to move past the Malahat, but a lot of the good jobs in BC are actually focused in Victoria. We have the provincial capital. So like a ton of government offices are here and we have the Navy, um, which has like a, there's a a Navy port here. So uh, there's a huge resource or a huge military community here as well. And also uh, that's right. Yeah. And also the tech community in Victoria is expanding at just a rapid pace. So there's a lot of tech companies coming here and pulling people from, other areas of the, of Canada and also even from the states some tech companies are coming from like San Francisco and moving to Victoria because even though it's absurdly expensive here it's still a lot less expensive than like San Francisco uh, so there's a lot of things all focused into one you know limited limited mile kilometer kind of area where you can only pack so many houses you can only only develop so much so that even even when there are things um, that impact the real estate values like you know in the 2007 2008 kind of 
housing crash. It didn't really crash much in Victoria. Property is, there was a dip, certainly, but whereas in other areas of the country and especially in the United States, you know, when you saw those like huge crashes, it just wasn't like that here because there's only so much land and there's a whole lot of people. I can't actually remember how I got onto that question. I talked for so long. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you like to uh, chat a little bit, right? (laughs) Yes, I'm a talker. I'm digging it though. I'm loving everything you're saying. Honestly, you're such an optimized uh, Canadian, and it's it's really inspiring to hear. Uh, you know, a married woman with four children living in a typically high cost of living city on an island, but you still have low expenses because their rentals, you know, pay for themselves, and you have uh, just such an optimized. Gosh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess just like lifestyle. Yeah. You're just your lifestyle is very, very optimized. And it's, it's, it's nice to see. And I'm really glad that, you know, Explorify Canada is bringing on people from all these different areas. I understand that Money Mechanic is also from Victoria, but it's good to hear from someone else's mouth. Exactly. If I were on here all the time, just telling you how great Victoria was, you guys wouldn't believe me. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. There are some people that don't like it here, but that's entirely related to the cost of living. If you're optimized and really um, strategic in how you're setting things up and you have just a, an average Joe Blow kind of job, you can really make it work. And the people that are in those situations, they love it here, right? Like the lifestyle is really hard to beat. The high cost of living, it's not great, but you can work with it if you're you're coming in and you've got a real plan. It's just like the Smith Maneuver, right? You can do it really right or really wrong, but you should know what you're doing. Yeah, that's a good point. So I'm really impressed that you manage, you said you have three rentals that you manage yourselves. Do you calculate the time that you spend doing that management as a wage that you would maybe pay yourself or out of the income you make from those? How do you, how do you work that out financially? Mm-hmm. So I'm aware that there is a time cost in that managing of rentals. I don't calculate it directly, but I would kind of turn that around and say, how much calculation are people putting into the time that they spend you know, with their investment portfolio? Are they deducting the hours that they researched a particular index fund or a particular stock or anything like that? Are they deducting that from their investment gains as well? I haven't heard of anybody doing that. I don't think that they're doing that. And I think even though it does factor in a little bit, I would say that the returns that you get throughout all of the years and decades of investment, they're they're increasing. You know, each time I'm doing something with one of the rentals, I'll quickly check the other ones just so I'm doing things all at once. You know, I get my my insurance for all the rentals all done at the same time. And I make sure that, you know, the property taxes all paid at the same time. So I'm not doing things more than one time, I'm really maximizing that that time time value impact, but I'm not calculating it in, and I wouldn't calculate it for other investments either. Right, that's that's fair enough. I can see that. I guess the point I was thinking is, if you had, if you were totally hands off, you'd be paying ten percent towards a management company to look after those properties. So, in the value of that ten percent is my thought process was, is 10% of my rental income worth the amount of time that you spend on it? And I'm not experienced in in the rental business yet. So that was my curiosity. 
No, definitely not worth 10% of, of what we're making. Not even close. Uh, we price our, our rentals under market value because we really want to get, you know, a huge selection of applicants so we can really choose the best fit for all of the people that are living in the house because there, there's multiple units. Um, so we want to make sure that everyone's going to fit really well together. And that requires a large applicant pool. But even with that under undervalue, it's not even close to a 10% spread that we would be paying a property management company. It's mostly because our in our the, the properties aren't costing that much time. There are some ongoing maintenance things, you know, I need to make sure that I'm forwarding the hydro bills and I'm making sure, you know, this is going and you know, sometimes like the hot water tank will need replacing. There's like smaller kind of things like that, but it tends to be more of a a spurt of time every now and then than it is an ongoing problem time sucker. And a lot of that has to do with choosing the right tenants who, if something goes wrong, you know, they're going to just deal with it. They're not going to be calling me at 2 a.m. and saying, oh, the tap is dripping. Can you fix it? You know, I'm I'm making sure we're getting tenants who take pride in their home. They're keeping it clean and they're keeping it well-maintained. And if something goes wonky, they fix it and they just with a situation that we have is, you know, they'll send me a picture of the broken thing or whatever it is or a video, and then they'll just send me a copy of the receipt and they deal with it. Obviously that doesn't work for, you know, large things like, you know, plumbing or electrical or whatever, but for just those kind of daily maintenance, you know, the light in the stove burned out kind of thing, they deal with that. And so that really reduces the amount of effort that I'm having to put in and paying a property management company 10% they don't take that kind of pride in the value in the in the properties. They're kind of renting to whoever's going to be the highest bidder who has an okay credit score. They're not really thoroughly investing in that in that property. They just want your 10% and they make sure rent is paid, but that's about it. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we can move on to uh your working situation because I, I think that's pretty interesting. You you somehow managed to squeeze in one day of work with homeschooling four children. <laughs> How in the world do you do that? Okay, well, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I was pregnant with my third child. And at that point, I was still working full time. Um, I work for the government. So it's just an average, average salary, average job. But uh, I was pregnant with my third child. And the daycare costs in Victoria are just absurd. I I can't remember exactly what I was paying, but it was a little over $1,000 a month for each of my older two kids. So when I was considering, you know, what am I going to do when I'm coming back to work after maternity leave? Where will I put my my third child? And I'm looking at daycare costs and I'm thinking, I am going to be losing money every month. I feel like by the time I've worked full time, I'll still be having to put my entire paycheck and some of my husband's paycheck into paying for daycare. And like, this is just crazy. So I went to my boss and I said, you know what, this is not manageable for me and I'm just not going to be able to work it. And my boss said, well, don't leave, you know, we'll work with you and we'll, we'll sort out 
you know, what's going to be the best situation for you. And at the same time, my coworker was also pregnant and she said, well, I don't want to come back full time. I only want to work four days a week. And so I said to my boss, can I work the other one day a week? (laughs) And I thought, I thought there's no way this is going to fly. I mean, who would agree to this, right? It's still like pension and benefits and all of this. It's a great job, but like who would agree to letting me have one day a week? But she did. And uh, I started that. And after a while, my other coworker who was working the four days, you know, we were kind of job sharing almost. Um, She ended up moving on to a totally other job. And I did not want to go back to working five days a week. So I said, well, I'm at one day or I quit. And uh, they gave me the one day. So this is kind of where I'm at right now. I wasn't homeschooling my kids at the time because I was working full time, right? But I went down to one day a week. And my, my oldest, my son, he has all of these kind of different interesting passions and things that he wants to learn about. And his friends were homeschooling and he said, well, I just really just want to try it. Just let me try it for a year. So I wasn't totally on board. You know, I was thinking like, oh, what if it makes him like a social outcast or something, right? Like all of the normal kind of fears that I thought, well, it's just one year and he's just this little kid and I'll try it out. And it kind of stuck. It was, this was, four years ago and oh, wow. he, yeah and he's he's still doing it and now my second she's eight and she's doing it and my third she's just going into kindergarten this coming September so she'll be doing it every year I give the kids the opportunity I say do you want to go to school you know kind of fingers <laughs> crossed all, no no <laughs> so <laughs> they love it it works for them and they're all thriving and successful so I think if I took it away now I'd feel really bad (laughs) but if it ever if it ever stops working if they ever do become you know like weird can't socialize kind of kids then straight to school they go (laughs) I I think you're amazing I mean I I occasionally help with homework my husband does most of the homework help and I can barely manage that so (laughs) I don't know how you teach them the entire (laughs) curriculum on your own it's really impressive it's different it's, it's not like homework was. Like my son, he was in school for years, right? And we had to do like the daily reading logs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was trying to teach him like arithmetic and all of that. It's different. It's not like homework. Everyone always thinks that's what it'll be, but it's not. When they're passionate about whatever they're learning about, it's not difficult. Like, you know, I taught my son um, some arithmetic concepts using dinosaurs. Like that was how we, that's how I taught him about multiplication is like, if we start with two dinosaurs and they multiply themselves, how many dinosaurs do we end up like three generations down the line? Right. (laughs) It was was completely ridiculous, but it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like dinosaurs breeding patterns. Sure. Let's learn multiplication. It was, it was bonkers, right? It's not like it is where they're sending home like worksheets from school and your kid's like, I don't want to learn this. You're the worst. And you're pulling your hair out, and everybody's yeah, crying. Yeah. And you know, it's not like that. It's when they're interested, they learn. So it it's not as much of a struggle. It's still work. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but it's not like that frustrating kind of lose your mind kind of struggle. Well, I, I think it takes a certain personality, and you also have to have some skill as a teacher too. So uh, <laughs> kudos to you. <laughs> you obviously you. you found ways to make it work. So yeah. the other question I had is. You know, if you're at work one day a week with four kids, what do you what do you do for childcare? Is, is there still daycare that one day a week? 
No, in my case, my mom, she happens to have Fridays off of work and bless her, she takes the kids. Aww. It yeah, for a while they were going to um like drop-in daycares and because they have such a big age spread between them, they were going to different daycares which made my morning routine just a little bit more hectic than Mm -hmm. I was enjoying and she's such a good grandma and she just said well you know like I can see that you're like really struggling with the drop-off and you know they don't want to be there and why don't I just step in whenever you need like the help and I thought oh yay (laughs) so she's been doing that for a couple years now and it's great it's really bonded the kids with her because normally you know when kids are around the grandparents you're kind of there too right except the occasional like babysitting kind of thing but she has this whole routine set up with them and you know they have like a a really bonded relationship that's amazing it is lucky kid and yes it's nice for your mom too she's an amazing lady to take that on that's right all right should we roll into our uh signature closing questions here Thanks, Megan, for coming on. Uh, we're going to wrap up this episode. We're we're still working on uh, how we're closing this off, but for now, we've got uh, three signature questions that we'd like to ask, ask each of our guests. So I'll start with mine, and mine is: Are you on in the Phi camp or the Fire camp? A little bit of both. I want to fire from work and I want my husband to fire from work. Uh, But we'll keep our rentals because they are, you know, they're a little bit of work, but they're not so much work that it feels like a daily grind kind of idea. Uh, the, The value that we get from those is worth it. All right. I've got a question too. Being a mechanic and, uh, doing things myself. I wanted to know whether, I'm impressed that you guys manage your own rentals because I'm sure you have some DIY stuff there, but just in general, uh, name something challenging or rewarding that you learned to DIY around the house or on your vehicle. Uh, This is funny, but haircuts. Uh, With four kids, it's a lot of haircutting. The hair all grows really fast. And so I am not a trained you know, hairdresser or anything like that, but YouTube being what it is has saved me. I don't even know how much money just learning different techniques. And my kids will go on to YouTube and they'll choose, you know, I want this hairstyle now. And so we'll find, you know, the tutorials for that and just follow it through step by step. So far, there's been no massacres. I've not had to bring out like the buzzers (laughs) for my boys or anything. They've never had the buzz cuts. It's always been styled and looking good. It's it's been good. No one's gotten cut accidentally. I would say it's successful. That is a fantastic idea. I think that's just great because we all spend a lot of money getting our haircuts. I'm coming by. I'm scheduling the next fashion <laughs> meetup and you're cutting my hair. <laughs> you better be careful what you wish for because I'll bring the scissors, you know? No, that's not. Well, I'm easy. I'm easy. I just go with the clippers anyway. Oh. So. <laughs> She's going to put a bowl on your head. <laughs> oh, no. Hey, is there something wrong with that style? <laughs> Don't tell me. <laughs> I'm not sure I've actually seen like a headshot of you before. So for all I know, you have a bowl cut and I'm just a really rude person. Right, now. <laughs> yeah. right on. All right. Last one. We are a Canadian podcast. So what is your order from Tim Hortons? French vanilla and a Boston cream donut. I'm all about the sweet tooth. <laughs> that is so classic. <laughs> 
That's an that's an order you can order through the decades. That's right. Back. Yeah. I'm digging it. Thanks so much for coming on and finding time in uh, what it seems to be a very uh, packed life. So thanks so much for talking yeah. to us. I, I I really think this episode is going to resonate a lot with people because yeah. I think this maneuver is always interesting. And you gave some uh, outstanding answers for Victoria as well. Oh, thank you. It was so great to be here. Yeah, now you can say you've been on a podcast. <laughs> Yay. Woohoo! First for everything. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find all our show notes at explorifycanada.ca. Do you like what you're hearing? Help us grow by sharing the show with friends and family. Please subscribe and leave us a comment or review on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us at our own blogs, figarage.ca, canadianfire.ca, or eatsleepbreathefy.com. Our music today was provided by Purple Planet. We'll be back with another episode soon. We'll talk then.